Howdy, and welcome to another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I'm your host, Daniel Dolphin. Good morning, and welcome to our March Q&A. Just to remind everybody, I do get the questions for these Q&As and the topics from you. So these are compiled from emails that I've gotten, direct messages, private messages on various social media platforms, sometimes discussions that I witness or that I see that I think would make a good topic, and primarily from my Facebook group, Bits, Spurs, and Good Sense. If you want to ask questions directly, that is a a really good place to do it, although I I definitely get more private messages than, than public messages on that forum Uh, but that's where i like to do it because then other people can read it more people can learn from it our first question for today how do you go about picking the right instructor that's really a difficult question to answer the first thing i want to say about it is that you are simply entering into a business arrangement when you get an instructor you pay them for their time and their experience and their ability to communicate and then you're done. And that can go ongoing, or it can be a one-time thing, or or whatever. You are not getting married. All right? Sometimes people feel that way. Sometimes instructors feel that way. There definitely is some possessiveness among different instructors and so forth that that's my client. Well, it was your client last week when you had a lesson with them, but today they're someone else's client when they're paying a new person for a lesson. So, Remember that. You have options. You, you can take a lesson with anybody, dip your toe in the water, cost you a little bit. Maybe you learn something. Maybe you don't. Probably the most important thing you learn in the first lesson is whether or not this person is your cup of tea. So what am I looking for? Personality is a really big part of it. I want to make sure that the way this person communicates, you like I always talk about that being flavors of ice cream. Some people just don't like Rocky Road, and if this person's Rocky Road, you know, you're not going to enjoy your lesson. You're not going to get as much from it. Their personality is going to distract you from their message. So you have to get along with them. Some people are really dry. Some people are fun and humorous. All depends on what you're looking for. Some people come to a lesson wanting to have a good time. Some people come to a lesson very, very serious. It just all depends. Now down to education and experience, I'm not a fan of really young, inexperienced people giving lessons. I know that's pretty common. A lot of these English tables, particularly, they'll have the working student. I don't think a 16-year-old needs to be teaching anybody anything. I'm sorry. I just, you know, I feel like the things that you learn wrong in the beginning are the most harmful because you think you have it right, and then you don't discover until later that everything you've learned based upon that thing you thought was true is wrong. So I think you need to be taking lessons with someone who's at least 30, you know, 35, 40, someone with some decades behind them in the industry that's seen enough to have a grasp of the big picture. Are there exceptions to that? Yeah, there's some 25-year-olds that were, you know, horse trainers kids, and they do have 15 years of of real decent experience in the business or, or something like that. But Those are the exceptions, not the rule. Now, along with experience, I said education. That kind of ties in with what your needs are. So, 
I'll be the first to tell you that just because someone is a really good horseman doesn't mean that they're a really good teacher. That being said, if you're at a pretty high level and you are looking to go from the top 10 to the top five, or if you're really pursuing a world championship or something, then someone like me who's more of a generalist is not going to be who you need to go to. You need to be working with someone that's been there and understands exactly what it takes and knows the nuances of the judging, the fads, all of that sort of stuff that frankly I wouldn't appreciate or, or I would I would be more wanting to fight it rather than go along with it. And if you want to win there, you better be going along with it. Another thing I'll say about this is that in my experience, the certifications and that sort of thing are not, they're, they're not hardly worth the paper they're written on a lot of times. I, I'm going to certainly judge the person by what I see them do with a horse, how they're interacting, their personality. All those things mean way more than a piece of paper. Just like a horse's pedigree. I, I can't ride the papers. Just because someone has a degree in this or, or certification from some whatever does not mean they're a good instructor. And just because someone doesn't have any of those certifications does not mean they're a bad instructor or that they're uneducated or anything like that. And honestly, again, in my experience, most of the people that I've met that have the pieces of paper are more impressed with what they know than I am. Exceptions to every rule, but but just, you know, for whatever that's worth. If you find an instructor that's really arrogant, part of the process of learning is when you, you kind of first stick your head in the bubble and you start to see how big the world is and then you start to be able to do a few things successfully and you get kind of impressed with yourself. Anytime you meet someone that's in that stage, they're at an early stage of learning. So that almost always signifies to you that that the, the cocky, arrogant people are green as hell. And generally, the more you learn, the more you realize how much there is to learn the more failures you've had, the more humble you tend to get. When you meet the people that are 50 and 60 and have done this a long, long time and have had a hell of a lot of success, almost always you're going to be surprised by how humble they are. So, again, use that how you will. On the other end of the business scale, they need to be legit. They need to have insurance. They need to have those sorts of things in place. They maybe need to have you know, some rules that you need to ask about, hey, do you require to ride a helmet? Do you have a horse that I can ride or do I need to bring my own? Do you have tack that I can use? Kind of ask some of those questions on the front end. First one of those I'm going to say, it's always a red flag to me if the first question out of someone's mouth is, do I have insurance? I'm now thinking, why are you planning on suing me? <laughs> so, so maybe don't make that the first question that you ask. But, you know, I mean... It's 2022. You got to have all that stuff in place. Also, it wouldn't be uncommon for trainers, boarding facilities, whatever, to have contracts that you have to sign in order to start. And that's not a bad thing. Um, it, it should outline, you know, what everybody is expected to do, what the liabilities are or aren't. For instance, like, like doing a clinic or giving someone a lesson. Even if I see a train wreck coming, there's no way most of the time that I could verbalize to you to act before it happens. You know, I'm going to see it a half a second before. 
uh, I can't control your horse for you when you're 80 feet away from me and, and so forth. So just just make sure all that stuff is, is in place and everything is legit. Boarding facilities are right in that same vein. If I'm going to go to a boarding facility, I want to meet the staff. I want to know who's feeding the horses. I want to watch them. If every horse they feed is pinned ears and aggressive, that'd be a red flag. If I meet the boarding facility manager and they are super, super clean all the time, that'd be a red flag. They should be pretty dirty working on a, a horse farm at a boarding facility or something. They should be doing some things. If they don't ever touch a horse, then um, not probably the kind of manager that I want to be around. I want to find out if they've got a certain vet that they use, if my vet's allowed to come. Maybe they're only going to use Dr. XYZ, and if you want to use your own vet, that's going to be a problem. We're only going to use Dr. XYZ. So it could be the same with a farrier, that sort of thing. And again, a boarding facility is typically going to have a contract. So just find all that stuff out in the beginning. If, you know, what, what are the facility amenities? Do they have a walker if you want one? Uh, are you wanting to ride at night? Do they have an arena with lights? Just that basic sort of stuff. I'll tell you that um, just from my, my end of things on the horsemanship scale, I would way, way, way rather have a horse turned out as much as possible. Uh, I don't want a horse living in a stall. I view horses being in stalls as the kind of thing you actually have to break them to. It can be very, very stressful for a horse. So I want to move them around. I'm happy for them to live with other horses that I don't necessarily own. Lots of boarding facilities are not going to want to take that sort of liability, though. So just see what you got and if it suits your deal. I do want to kind of task the manager, ask them some questions, make sure that they're up to snuff and do have an actual understanding of horses and health problems they could recognize colic things like that i might also ask them their history you'll be really surprised by how many people in the horse business have a whole new job every six months if they're one of those kind of people then you know they probably have that sort of personality where things are going to build up and blow up and it's on a six-month fuse and then they're going to have to go to another state or 200 miles away or something. And so I might want to just not not deal with that train wreck in my life if I've already got enough crap to worry about. One of the things that's been on my mind lately has been the research stuff. We, we did a lot of talk about that in the last Q&A. I don't remember exactly what it was, but something brought up racing. And, and anytime I mention racing, there's always a lot of hate. And hey, they're... they're there definitely are some some things about racing and practices involved and, and uh, that are distasteful to me that I'm not a fan of. I would not want to send a horse that I own to a racetrack. By and large, I'm not into the racing thing. I have sure had to restart a bunch of them and, and OTTBs that are going into the English side of things and all of that. And it's just, I sure wish the racing world would learn some horsemanship to be quite frank. But this is one of those things where we have to have a little bit of perspective. Almost all of the research, the medical advances, the things that we learn about horses to keep them sounder, longer, and better, almost all of that gets funded 
because of racehorses. It's where the majority of the money is. You take all of the the cutting horses. We just had a bunch of the futurity sales and stuff, and there were some yearlings and two-year-olds going forward $500,000, breaking all sorts of records. Those aren't even close to records in the racing world. The money there is massive, and that is where the laminitis research comes from. All, all of these sorts of medical advances that we get, not all, 90% of that comes because of racing. So there are pros, there are cons. But this is sort of the law of unintended consequences. If you had a, a pen and you could write a bill and tomorrow make a racing illegal, you would hurt the horse business in a major, major way. Um, it, it is a necessary evil if you want to think of it that way. But just as there are bad things involved with racing, there's a lot of good that comes from it and a lot of money and funding of projects that we all benefit from directly because of the money involved in racing. So just a thought. One of the other questions that I've had recently is about cult starting and just about everybody out there has videos and stuff on cult starting including myself and this person basically asked why which i thought was a really fantastic question i view cult starting a whole lot like trimming your own horse's feet i do not think most people have any business starting their own horse i don't think you have any business trimming your own horse's feet for the most part there there's it's not a superficial kind of a thing and you can do a lot of damage without knowing it in both cases so why is it important for you to watch some cult starting videos and to learn some of those things it's because anytime you deal with a new horse or you get into a situation with a horse where they get flustered they always revert back to their foundation and if you have no idea what the hierarchy of skills, what the most basic, the most foundational skill this horse is going to focus back on, then you have no idea where to start and to get control of them. And that is why I think you need to watch some cult starting videos. Not because you need to learn to start a cult, but because if you're going to get on a new horse, you need to build rapport. If, if, you see sometimes these deals at expos where they'll have a dressage rider and then like a rainer <clears throat> and they have them switch horses. I do things all the time at clinics where someone's having a problem with their horse and I have to go get on that horse. Well, the first few things you're going to do with that animal are build rapport. You're going to set up a line of communication. It's not appropriate for me to get on a new horse for the first time and the first thing I ask for is a flying lead change or a half pass or something like that. I need to ask for a shoulder yield, a lateral flexion of the neck, moving the hips around a little bit, and just get into the groove with those little things. And if you don't understand what those little things are, if you don't understand the degrees of them, then you have nowhere to begin. And... That is a really, really key thing to understand and to be aware of. So that's why watching some cult starting stuff is important and something that everyone involved with horses should do. This also ties in with a warm-up. 
basically all of the things that I do with a Colt in the beginning get shortened. So what it might take me 30 minutes to get through with a Colt the first day takes me less and less and less time. And, and what I've accomplished in three weeks, in three months, I can do that in five minutes. And that now is my warm up. So it, it should all be very logical. It should all be very scalable. And part of training a horse, you're pushing them forward. They get a little confused. They get a little frustrated. You have to back up. And you have to back up enough steps to a point where they get comfortable again. You get control again. They soften up. And then you bring them right back up the scale to where you're trying to progress them to. That is 90% of your time training horses. That's what you're doing. You're falling back. You're gaining ground. You're losing ground. You're gaining ground. Again, you, you have to know what the steps are in order to have any sort of a chance at getting that horse out of a spot of frustration or confusion. I, I talk about this a lot with groundwork, too. I really feel as I walk around and, and go different places and, and, and work with different people, I do not think most people understand why they're doing groundwork. They just are kind of going through the motions for the most part. Uh, we did a video on that, but I basically have three goals of groundwork. The first goal is to get your horse's attention. If you don't have their attention on the ground, you're not going to have their attention in the saddle. Almost every single bad thing that's ever going to happen to you around a horse, the first thing that's going to happen you're going to lose the animal's attention. If you're getting on a horse and he's looking off somewhere else and his ears are pricked forward and he's not paying attention to you, you're fixing to have a wreck. Most people are not nearly aware enough of their horse's attention from the ground and from the saddle. The second step of that is working on desensitizing or sensitizing. How reactive is my horse? This is basically getting the horse into a thinking state of mind where they're ready to ride. That can be done catching them in the paddock and leading them through a gate. Gates are awesome places to do a little bit of groundwork. Groundwork does not have to look anything like lunging a horse around. And in fact, I don't think it really should. Lunging is for sort of greener horses. But once again, just like we talked about that horse at the three-week stage versus the three-month stage, the groundwork should get compacted. It should go much, 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 much faster. It should become much, much more subtle. And in three months' time, it shouldn't look anything like it looked in three days' time. So if you're you're habituating your horse to needing 20 minutes of this stuff, or, or I had a conversation about this with a dressage guy the other day, and I loved his point of view, it's pretty common for them to put a horse on the lunge and let him buck around and play for 20 minutes. Well... All they're doing is training their horse to buck and to play for 20 minutes. There's absolutely no need for that. Uh, in fact, I would call it very counterproductive. So all of that stuff is scalable and it all falls back to colt starting. What was the, the most basic thing we began with this horse? And then the third thing, I guess I'll just finish, goals of groundwork wise, is furthering my control of the horse's feet. So if I want to get a little fancier, I want to do liberty work, I want to do whatever, that's sort of the, the third box. I also believe with both warming a horse up and groundwork type stuff that there is a line of good enough. And if we, well, let me back up on how I want to say that. I always want to 
save some things to do for later. So if I get to good enough, then I'm ready to ride and we move on down the road, we do something else. Let's say six months down the road, my horse has an injury or we hit a plateau or I hit a point where I don't really know what to do anymore. Or maybe I messed up, put too much pressure, didn't put enough pressure. Uh, something goes wrong and we're now in a kind of a bad spot mentally. If I still have some groundwork stuff I haven't done, then I have a good way to shift gears and kind of get my horse back or bring them back into work from a physical problem. But I can really engage their mind and we're not doing mindless exercise. I would way rather exercise the mind and the body than just the body. So it all is, is a back to basics. One of those great memes that, that goes around the world is how beginning riders want to work on intermediate horsemanship. Intermediate riders want to work on advanced horsemanship. Advanced riders want to work on basic horsemanship. I've always thought it's a great thing. I, and I, in my mind, I think of the college professor here, but when you, you have this thing that's really been puzzling you, it could be chemistry, math, whatever. Math's a great example. Let's do math because it's scalable, logical. It all builds on itself and it's, it's absolute and it follows very distinct rules. So you go to your professor, you're having trouble with this and what do they always do? They always back it up to simple, basic steps that you know how to perform. They put the steps in the right order. They simplify and boom, you solve the complex problem in a very simplistic way. And someone way more educated and experienced than you brought you back to simpler things. They didn't make it more complicated. They didn't stay in the realm of overthinking and making things complicated. They backed up and made it simpler. People that really understand things always back up and make them simpler than the people who are frustrated and confused and can't figure it out. That's a hallmark. Uh, next, we had kind of going hand in hand with that. I had a question on the most common exercises that I teach my horse to warm up before going into the arena. So I think of everything as an exercise. How I catch the horse is an exercise. I'm paying attention to that. Did the horse take a few steps away from me when I entered the paddock? Did they turn and face me up immediately? Did they take a few steps towards me? Did I have to chase them around for a few minutes? All of that stuff kind of tells me where that horse is today. Maybe I had a horse that was easy to catch, and for the last couple of weeks, it's starting to take me a couple of minutes, and then five minutes, and then ten minutes. Something's going on there. That's, that horse is telling me something, and I need to back up and evaluate and figure out are, are they a little sore you know something's going on there so that's a big part of the warm-up right there is is just the evaluation process of the horse today i'm always going to pay attention to how they go through the gate i'm paying attention to how they lead are they crowding me today are they reactive whatever uh, hopefully i'm going to deal with all of that stuff quickly and subtly if we've got a horse that's you know is kind of advanced, not a real green colt or anything. We can solve that stuff pretty quickly with our groundwork and get them back into a thinking mental state. When I get on a horse, I have a few sort of rituals that I go through. The first one is I want them bent around a little bit and I want the inside eye and ear 
on me. Uh, if, if they are not paying attention to me, I'm not getting on them. And you shouldn't either. So I want their attention. Like I said, with groundwork, I get in the saddle. I tend to immediately pitch them some slack. Now, again, I'm assuming we're riding the a safe, easygoing, well-prepared, mentally stable horse here. If I'm dealing with a problem horse that has a bucking issue, that that changes some things here, but that's not what I'm going to discuss right now. So I'm going to pitch them some slack, and it is my habit to fidget for about 30 seconds. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to adjust my blue jeans. I'm going to twist my background a little bit, crack my shoulders. Even if I don't need to do any of those things, I just go through the ritual of a lot of movement. I'm kind of daring the horse to walk off. I don't know if I've talked about my cue to relax, but that is to have your hand down on the horse's neck with slack in the reins. That's kind of like putting a horse in park. Any horse that I've been riding for very long should have a pretty good idea of what that is. So I'm doing that while I'm twisting around and fidgeting. And then I'm usually going to stop that with kind of a big deep breath and sit in the saddle. The big picture of all of that is that my horse expects for me to mount them. And then we're going to sit there for 30 seconds while I move around. So somewhere down the road, if I need to get on a horse and put on my jacket or do whatever, that's going to be an easy thing for me. They're not expecting we're walking off and and you get that horse that, you know, you're halfway up there and he's taken off or something. They're in the habit of standing there like a statue. I do not do very much flexing a horse around when they're standing still. And again, if, if we have a horse at the stage I was just describing, that wouldn't be on the menu at all. I tend to always walk horses off into a circle. Uh, So to the left or to the right, I kind of tend to alternate that. It's kind of like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, everything goes to the right. And Thursday or Tuesday, Thursday, everything goes to the left or, or something along those lines to start. So once again, they're not anticipating we always start a left hand circle. And I just do some little circles. I call the exercise a purposeful circle. So I actually want them to walk with a purpose. I don't want a lazy walk. I kind of want some effort into it. And I am bending them around. This is a pretty small circle, six to eight foot circle. And as soon as I get a pretty good one to the left, I go to the right. As soon as I get a good one to the right, I go to the left. And I'm probably going to do 15 or 20 of these uh, all together on most horses most days. One of the major things that I am feeling for when I'm riding those circles is the horse's loin and that they are not untracking. Okay. So I know I've talked about this before in other podcasts, but I am not a huge fan of doing lots of untracking of the hindquarters. So for most horses, I'm not going to start my day with disengaging the hindquarters. I'm starting my day with engagement of the hindquarters. I'm driving them forward with both legs. I want the hindquarters under the horse, driving, pushing, engaging. So specifically what I'm feeling for in this circle is really engagement of the horse's hindquarters and flexibility of the neck. Am I getting resistance? Are they not soft going to the left? Am I getting head tossing, chin up and down, that sort of thing, rather than a horse that's committed to bending to the left? I'm also feeling those hindquarters. So what I'm looking for is, let's say I'm walking an eight-foot circle. I don't want the front feet on an eight-foot circle and the hind feet on a 10-foot circle. That tells me that the horse is untracking. If the horse is untracking like that, it tells me that they are stiff today. 
Now, if my first or second circle starts out like that, no big deal. But by the time I get to my 15th circle, hopefully I've worked it out. If I haven't, then I'm not ready to leave this exercise. I have not accomplished what the purpose of the exercise was. I'm not warming my horse up. I still have a stiff animal. I will say I mentioned horses that buck earlier. If you do have one that tends to buck, I can promise you one of the, the, the two biggest things that horses that are cold-backed or, or buck in the initial parts of a ride, they all want to lock their front end up, and they're all stiff in their back. And this exercise is excellent at working both of those out. I can get by with tons of cold-back horses that don't ever buck for me specifically because of this exercise right here. Uh, likewise, if I had a horse 30 minutes into a ride, three hours into a ride, whatever that, that feels like he's starting to want a buck, guess what I go and do? So I can loosen and limber my lateral stuff. I can get my shoulder. Let's say that, it, that he keeps wanting to cut in on the circle. I'm, I'm using my inside leg to hold his shoulder out. I mean, that's the keys to the castle. And again, I'm just doing all of this at a walk. Beyond that, I want to work a little bit on an exercise I call the hoagie pokey which is stopping the horse at, on a certain step. So if I'm doing my purposeful circle and I sit down in the saddle and add just a little bit of rain contact, my horse should stop for me. If they're taking three more steps, once again, that's kind of revealing problems that I'm having today and things that I need to be working on. Uh, very typically, once I have done the purposeful circle, I do an exercise or two that's for me. And I'm kind of, I'm a real big fan of the rider getting with the horse before the rider really asks the horse to get with the person. So I want to ride that horse around and I want to feel their feet and kind of that hokey pokey exercise. If I put my right heel down and put some weight into the stirrup and sit back in the saddle, then I should have, the way I train horses, their right hind foot should come up underneath them and stop them. And, and I'm starting to, to get with the horse and I'm feeling their feet and I'm getting in rhythm and I'm going to time some of those sorts of cues. And, and I just really want to start feeling my horse's feet when the right front moves, left front, and, and get into that rhythm. Uh, and this is a very difficult exercise to describe orally without a visual representation. So we're going to have this. It's, it's one of the ones on the docket to be filmed very quickly. So just keep up with the YouTube channel and I'll, I'll give you a visual video on, on this exercise. Uh, so the next thing, if I have a horse that's in a training stage of contact, now I'm going to introduce contact. I haven't done it so far. I don't care if I'm riding a jumper, dressage prospect or whatever. We do not start with two-rein contact, period, full stop, never, ever, 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 ever. We warm up to that. We do not begin with that. One of the real good exercises that you can do to learn how to be real light in contact is to walk your horse in big circles, whole arena, real moving out, very loose, ground-covering sort of a walk, and try to begin to take up rain contact right there you'll notice as a horse is walking that their head is moving left and right up and down in and out three directions kind of all at the same time in a steady rhythm what most people tend to do is, is their hands are even and they they pick up both reins to the exact same degree 
If you do that, what you really are offering your horse is a series of rhythmic bumps left and right that mean absolutely nothing. And you're then wanting him to contain his head and stop moving his head in the natural rhythm with his feet, which I can promise you is going to lead to tension and resistance in the horse. And that is such a common thing. I would promise you, you've been watching it for a long, long time and probably don't even recognize it. You're, you're jaded to that. Even at very high levels, we see riding that is that way. What I would challenge you to do in that warm-up is to try to get your hands broken loose from that, being even in the same amount of tension and that rhythmic bumping of the horse that you tune out, and start trying to follow the corner of the horse's mouth. So your right hand is going forward as his head is turning left, and your left hand is going forward as his head is going right in that little rhythm as he's walking. And you will be able eventually to develop a very light contact and actually follow the horse's mouth where he has a consistent feel instead of five pounds of pressure, no pressure, five pounds of pressure, no pressure. We call it contact, but we are actually bumping the horse all the time. And eventually horses learn to stop moving their head naturally. And that leads to a whole host of problems, which again would be very difficult to describe without the visual will be far more helpful. That kind of ties in with the next topic. Uh, I was asked to talk about fixing animals that have a nervous mouth and excessive chewing. I get tons and tons of bit problems, questions, and I will say here that nervous mouths are almost always man-made. It tends to not be a bit problem. Sometimes we have a really inappropriate bit in the horse's mouth, but for the most part, that's not the real issue. The, the real issue is the way that the hands are handling the horse. So, a few of the little tricks of the trade. If I do have a horse with a nervous mouth, almost always I back that horse down into an O-ring, single-jointed, 7 sixteenths of an inch diameter, sweet iron, with copper inlay mouthpiece. A lot of people ask me what manufacturer I prefer. I I very purposefully do not get into that. Uh, That's kind of sponsorship territory. And and frankly, most bit manufacturers make perfectly functional and serviceable bits. If you can find a bit that is an O-ring, the sleeve where the... uh, mouthpiece ties into the cheek the ring isn't oversized where there's the the potential for pinching if you can fulfill that find a 7 16th inch mouthpiece that is sweet iron with copper inlay and single jointed i guarantee you there's at least a dozen manufacturers that i could name that make a bit just like that you could find them as low as 40 or 50 bucks and you could go up to several hundred uh, again depending on how fancy you want it Almost all of those are going to be perfectly serviceable and functional. Why do I want that specific bit? So one of the big red flags that I see a lot of times with horses that have nervous mouths, they always tend to work up lots of foam. Foam is a major red flag. Again, I don't care if the horse is a a Grand Prix level dressage horse in the Olympics. I don't care if if it won the reigning futurity. 
if you see it riding around with foam outside of the mouth, red flag. Why? We want a horse to pick a bit up. We want them to hold it in their mouth. I always want the bit to be a little bit looser than most people do. So, so what do I mean specifically by that? A snaffle bit, I tend to hang in a horse's mouth where it will, at, at rest, when I initially put it in the horse's mouth, it's going to hang about a quarter, maybe three-eighths of an inch below the corner of the horse's mouth, particularly with an O-ring bit because the ring is, is more independent of the mouthpiece. The horse can very easily pick that up with their tongue, suck on it, and, it, and all they have to hold is the weight of the mouthpiece. If I have a horse that has mouth problems, we're, we're rehabbing here. So we need to get them out of the problematic state. Part of the foam is, is, is your fault, quite frankly. People want shiny bits. They want highly polished, shiny bits. A highly polished bit in a horse's mouth is a greased pig. They are going to have saliva that comes around that bit. And saliva on something highly polished is pretty damn slick. It's hard to hold. And their mouth gets fatigued. And that leads to problems. The sweet iron bits rust. You don't want to see rust. I understand that. You don't want to pay good money for a bit and then see it rust. But that rust gives that bit texture. And that texture means that the horse can hold the damn thing and he doesn't get fatigued and he's a lot happier. One of the comments that I like to make is that a horse that shines is far preferable to one that's shiny. So get past the shiny bit thing. And I sure wish more manufacturers would stop holly polishing their, their mouthpieces. Alloys is another problem. So I said most manufacturers make a bit like this. Some do not. Some only sell alloys. What alloys are, I know I'm getting a little into the metallurgy here. I'm sorry, but I mean, this is important and relevant. An alloy, like stainless steel, for instance, is an alloy. It's basically when we take basic steel, which is sweet iron. That's just iron with a little bit of carbon, less than 1% carbon, and usually less than even half of 1% carbon in it. That is basic steel. If we add, for instance, chromium to it, more than 8% chromium, we get into a stainless steel. So now we have a bit that will not rust and will keep you happy because that thing will shine. Will not rust. Okay. So we took chromium. We added in there. It's like chocolate milk. We put chocolate and milk. We mix it together. Now we have chocolate milk. We had two separate ingredients. Now we have one and we can't separate the chocolate out of the milk at that point. That is what an alloy is. There are many alloys, lots and lots. I'm just using stainless steel as the example. Most of the time when they're using an alloy, it is specifically to avoid rust. Now, I'll say this. If they were to add a textural feature to the bars or cannons of the bit so that it is easy to hold, I wouldn't have a single problem with that being an alloy. Because the reason I don't like the alloy is because slick, shiny, polished. If they solve that problem and they still have as an alloy, now the alloy doesn't bother me. The reason I like the copper inlay is because this brings into something called galvanization. Galvanization is when we have two dissimilar metals in an electrolyte solution. 
most of the time in the horse world, that second metal is going to be copper. This literally forms a battery. So when we have a bit with copper in contact with iron in the horse's mouth, the saliva is the electrolyte solution, and there will literally be a weak electric current formed there. You can think of this like if you take one of the 9-volt square batteries and you put it to your tongue, you get that little sort of metallic taste. It also is going to stimulate you to salivate. Now, this is where a lot of people have some things wrong. and This is where the white foam thing comes into a problem. One of those sayings is a foamy mouth is a wet mouth and a wet mouth is a good mouth. Well, let's, let's think about that statement. Why is a wet mouth a good mouth? The reason that a wet mouth is a good mouth is because it causes the horse to swallow. Why is swallowing important? Swallowing is physiologically connected to relaxation. If we think about sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, sympathetic is fight or flight. Parasympathetic is rest and digest. It's why we know that Licking and chewing, when a horse learns something and they lick and chew, the reason we know that they learn something that correlates with a dopamine release is because digestion kicked back in. We left sympathetic for parasympathetic, which is thinking side. Sympathetic is instinct and reaction. Now we got back to rest and digest, thinking side. Digestion kicked back in. Nice cervical nerve kicked back in. The horse starts to salivate again. Now they lick and chew to swallow the saliva. And we know that that correlates with a release of dopamine. A horse that isn't swallowing is not in the parasympathetic nervous system and thus is not thinking. They are in reaction. They are not in a very trainable state. They are not in a conscious state. So if I see saliva outside of a horse's mouth, I know they're not swallowing. They're not swallowing, they're not relaxed, and they're not in a thinking state. Additionally, swallowing um, the hyoid apparatus, it's one of those things you might hear from crime drama shows that so-and-so was choked, and, and we know that because we saw the broken hyoid. Well, the hyoid apparatus is actually seven bones that sort of form a Y, and they, they cradle the tongue basically, the base of the tongue. The tongue of a horse is two or three pounds. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty heavy muscle, so it needs some support. Where it gets that support is from the hyoid apparatus. The hyoid apparatus has ligaments that attach to it and run to the cervical vertebra all the way down the neck, even into the shoulders and the sternum. So each time a horse swallows, they work their tongue. They sort of work that hyoid apparatus. They stretch, relax, move and flex those muscles and they relax. If a horse is riding around not swallowing, I can absolutely 1000% promise you they are tense in their pole, their neck and in their shoulders all the way down. It translates throughout the horse's body. So I don't care who tells you different. A horse that has saliva outside the mouth, especially foamy saliva, isn't learning and in a relaxed state. It's a huge red flag. So 
now you know why that horse is nervous and anxious. And and these are the things that we need to do. We need to get that bit with good metallurgy in his mouth. So now he can grip it. He can hold it and it's going to stimulate him to salivate. If we're riding him in a manner that doesn't distract him too much, doesn't rile him up too much, then he should start swallowing more and more and more. He's also going to want that bit on his tongue. So if we had a horse that's withdrawing the tongue and so forth, that, that copper and sweet iron will help with that a lot. Uh, the most severe of these horses that wants to put their bit underneath the tongue, I will just stand next to them in a round pin or a stall or something like that. I wait for them to remove their tongue. I stick my finger in their mouth. I pick the bit up high all the way to the roof of the mouth. I wait for the tongue to come back. I let go of it. It might be two seconds. They pull the tongue out again. I stick my finger in my mouth. I pick the bed up. We may go through this little circus for 10 or 15 minutes. Most of them, after a few minutes, will start standing there with the bit on top of the tongue. And they will do that longer and longer and longer. So initially, maybe I go from two seconds to 15 seconds. They'll hold it. And then they withdraw it again. If, if I can't just stand next to him doing this, then there's no way that, that he can, uh, you know, I can ride him. Right. And one of the things people don't understand about that sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system, a horse cannot stay in the sympathetic nervous system indefinitely. Um, that's where we've got like adrenaline and, and cortisol, which is the stress hormone and all. It's it burns a hell of a lot of energy to be in the sympathetic nervous system. It's not fun. It's not where they want to be. So if you get a horse that goes there, you can wait them out and they're going to return. And that's basically what I'm doing. I'm standing there beside them. They're going to have to deal with me and then they return. And when they return, nothing bad happens. We just have the bit like this and we start to see that it's okay to hold the bit like this. Now I start riding them a little bit. I go into that little purposeful circle thing we were talking about earlier. If they start getting a nervous mouth, I get more lateral with them. I bend them around. I'm relaxing the back. I am getting them to move their tongue, work the hyoid apparatus, swallow, relaxation, wash, rinse, repeat. When they get still and quiet, I stop. I'm actually going to spend a lot of time with one of these horses just sitting there, not moving at all, the horse holding the bit and relaxed and happy. I might do that for 10 minutes at a time, and then I ride them a little bit. They start to get nervous, one rein, flex them around, relax them. They stop playing with the bit, stop, sit. And before long, most of them do learn that, that it's okay to relax with the bit and that I can, in fact, cue relaxation through my reins with the bit. And that's ultimately what I'm trying to do. And we kind of are replacing a mental pattern when we do that. The one rein at a time thing is huge. That's why we go to the single jointed snaffle when we do this. When I feel like I have that lesson somewhat ingrained and I've built a rapport with the animal, they're, they're kind of seeing the pattern. They're expecting it to go a certain way. Now, maybe I can move them back up into a shank bit or, or, or wherever we're eventually trying to go. Probably the original bit that the owner had that was in the horse's mouth violated some of these rules that we're looking for for instance maybe it was alloyed or, or something like that and we're not ever going back to that bit now we're looking for a bit that mechanically functions the way that we need it to but has the properties in it that we're looking for 
if you have a really bad one of these where the, the stage of me standing beside the horse picking the bit up in the mouth didn't fix anything, there is a way that you could take a piece of string. Once again, this is probably impossible to describe orally, but, but you basically would run the, the string or twine through the, one of the central rings of the mouthpiece and you tie a loop in it. Uh, so you put the bit in the horse's mouth and now you tie that basically above his nose so you got a loop that's i don't know six or eight inches in diameter it holds the central ring of the bit and it goes over the top part of the horse's jaw around his nose through his mouth and then you take the end of the string and you run it up to the brow band of the bridle or, or you can tie it into the forelock of the horse or whatever and that holds the bit up if the, the horse is just opening their mouth and trying to spit the bit out and release it rather than sucking on it and picking it up, that will hold the bit in a better position and makes it a little more difficult for the horse to get their tongue over the top of it and and so forth. Rarely do I get a horse in for rehab that I can't rehab and get them to riding well in a bit. Occasionally I do. The horses that I don't fix tend to actually have trauma to the mouth. So if you, if you cut a tongue or cut the corners of the mouth pretty well, and you wind up with actual scar tissue in there. You know, scar tissue, if, if you have a bad scar on your body, you know that it doesn't have the same nerve tissue running through it, at least not initially. So that they actually lose the feel for the bit. The nuance, the sensitivity, all of the great things that are in the tongue and the corners of the mouth, uh, we literally destroy the nerve tissue that runs there and, and just shit the bed. We ruin the whole damn thing and the point and that of course is a tragedy when it happens uh i can't say that i come across those commonly but it, you know it, it it happens so um most of the horses that i've run across that i've had those problems have been off the track the racehorse sort of a thing but again it's you know nothing i can do about it i'm getting them after the fact not not before those are some of the things that I would do to deal with a nervous mouth. I don't want to overhandle that mouth. A lot of times, the nervous mouth horses are simply very sensitive horses. And the hands holding the reins have been too loud for too long. And they need to chill out. And we need to really work with that rider to get their hands softer and more sensitive so that they're not just too loud. I almost think of these horses kind of like, like autistic kids. If you take an autistic kid to a parade and wouldn't be, you know, they might have headphones on or helmet on or something because they're, they're so sensitive and so aware of everything going on. It just, it floods them and, and it's too much and it's sensory overload. A lot of these horses that have these problems are kind of that way. And if we don't fix the rider and get the rider to have more empathy and be more sensitive, if they continue to be too loud with their hands, the horse is, of course, going to revert right back to the same sensory overload state and show all the things that, that, that um, through their body language, they, they're screaming the problems. So real big big flag. I'll also say here that most of the time when we have these problems, it's the tongue. Um, so a really common 
sort of tongue pressure bit, probably the most common bit that I see these, these horses from is the double jointed snaffle, which is super common, tends to be uh, used when people are riding a whole lot in contact. And that type of bit is a tongue pressure bit. And the tongue neurologically beyond any question is the most sensitive thing in the horse's mouth. Everybody worries about the bars by the time you have done any sort of damage to the bars, you are so past offending the tongue, it's not even funny. The tongue is where all of these problems reside. All of the vices that we see are with, well, I'm maybe being a little hyperbolic there, but, but I can promise you the problems with the tongue. You need to be concerned about the tongue. If, if you have bar problems, you missed major problems along the road before you got there. I promise you. One other thing I want to be sure and mention here, we just talked about the white foam. Well, we've explained the saliva outside of the mouth. This is the horse not using the tongue properly, not, not sucking on the saliva and swallowing it, but that doesn't make the saliva white. So there are some issues in the back of the throat with the soft palate and the epiglottis that can cause airway problems. Uh, and if you have a horse behind the vertical, you are setting a horse up for those airway problems. I'm not going to discuss all of that right now, but just you can take my word for it. Behind the vertical is a significant issue in multiple ways. If you're in front of the vertical and you have white foam, then you're probably breaking the mouth seal left and right, kind of like we talked about contact and the beginning of the ride and you practicing following the horse left and right rather than setting your hands or the horse having to learn how to stay between. When they do that, He's getting a slight pull on the left, slight pull on the right, rhythmically back and forth, breaking the mouth seal over and over and over and over again, obliterating the mouth seal is really what it's doing. Thus, we have air incorporated into the mouth where it shouldn't be. Horses only breathe through their nose. Mouth, when you're riding, shouldn't have air being added into it. If, if you're seeing white foam, you have air incorporated, just like if you whipped up egg whites into a meringue, big red flag uh, the next topic I, I feel like I've discussed a few times but but probably more peripherally rather than directly so we're going to talk about that a little bit and that is moving an older horse up from a snaffle into a curb bit and th this was brought about by a lady that they just bought a horse the daughter's ready to show it in, in some upper level stuff and, and now it's a requirement that it's ridden in a curb and not a, a snaffle. And I really don't care English or Western um, what we're doing here, whether we're moving up to a Pelham or, or double bridle stuff or, or whatever. I, I really focus on all of this the same way. Well, a few differences. but So the first thing is that I want to make absolute certain that I have gone about as far as I can go in a snaffle. If I have lateral flexion, or vertical flexion resistance if the horse is ever running through my hands at all you have work to do with the snaffle you're not ready to transition up sorry but that's just the way that it goes curb bits aren't really for training they are for refining we, we are very seldom teaching a horse something new in a curb bit we, we teach them that in the snaffle where we can handle them more directly and when we get into curb bits that's more get in get out territory so one of the things i'll talk about here 
is the single jointed bit. I love that mouthpiece in a snaffle because I think uh, snaffles and green horses and, and building the foundation is all about lateral flexion. And they are single jointed mouthpiece is just a phenomenal mouthpiece for lateral flexion. When we get to curb bits, we are introducing rotation of the mouthpiece, which is a significant mechanical change. Incidentally, there are a few snaffle bit manufacturers that have certain quote-unquote problems that they have designs that will solve. Um, most of those problems can only exist if the mouthpiece rotates. There is not a snaffle on the planet that is mechanically capable of rotating the mouthpiece. Let me say that again. There is not a snaffle on the planet, even a voucher, whatever, that is mechanically capable of rotating the mouthpiece. Thus, if we are looking at a problem-solving bit, solving a problem caused by rotating the mouthpiece, you have found a manufacturer that is manipulating you. Plain and simple. And to my mind, if you're building bits for a living and you don't understand that, well, you, either you should understand that and you don't, or you do understand that and you're blind. I don't really see a third option there. Anyway, you take that single-jointed mouthpiece and you put shanks on it, and now it rotates. It changes dramatically. Um, now, when we pull on both reins at the same time, and let me make the distinction, this only occurs when we pull on both reins at the same time. If we do pull on both reins at the same time with a single-jointed shank bit, we are going to form a point, and we're going to rotate that point forward down into the center line of the tongue where the lingual nerve runs, the most sensitive part of the tongue. There's not a horse on the planet that's going to appreciate that. So... The way that I use single-jointed mouthpieces, if I transition a horse, first of all, the only time I use that is sort of with my lower third. The, the horses that are a little slower come along that I kind of have to really break everything down and give them a lot of time to figure it out and go super slow. They're the only ones that I'm going to put a, a single-jointed mouthpiece in their mouth when I'm doing a transition. I'm going to ride that single-jointed mouthpiece 95% of the time with two hands and one rein at a time, just like a snaffle. And all I'm really introducing to them is a little bit of pole pressure and a little bit of curb pressure. And when I transition a horse up, I have the curb on the bridle fairly loose. Um, there are certain books and texts and so forth that will instruct you that a curb is to be put like this, with no flexibility and you rotate the shanks this many degrees and that's that is folly as far as i'm concerned i play with curb adjustment you definitely can have the same bit ride very differently with the curb adjusted in two different ways so that's something you should you should play with and explore in my opinion the way that that works is that rotation ends whenever the curb comes tight so if i have a looser curb on a new bit on a green horse, I give that horse more time to respond before the, the curb comes tight. And, and that's what I'm looking to do. I'm also going to very consciously slow my hands 
down. I want them to see me coming from a mile away. If I'm transitioning a horse, they should be pretty darn broke to my seat and my legs. Otherwise, why am I transitioning them? And thus, we've just changed part of the signal. And again, I'm going to go through like we talked about with the colt start. I'm going to back up to my simplest exercises, a little lateral flexion, a little shoulder yield, a little hip disengage, back up a step or two, not 20. And, and we're going to redo all of that stuff with this new bit. That might take me a month. That's a month well spent. Okay. Another thing that I, I tend to like to do, if, if I have a horse that's a little harder headed or, or maybe I, I need to move them up before I'd really like to move them up, real world versus ideal world, then I might, let's say I'm going to ride that horse for an hour, I might warm them up in the snaffle. I might ride them 30, 45 minutes in the snaffle. And then for a week or so, put the shank bit on and end my ride, just kind of cooling them down, walking around, doing little stuff with the new bit. I might just trail ride them for a week with the new bit. I do not want to hang... A curb bit in a horse's mouth for the first time, kick them off into a lope and try to go slide them and do a rollback or something like that. That's where you mess up. That introduction is going to be terrible and you're going to cause bracing and all kind of problems that are going to have to be fixed later. So I'm going to definitely slow down. Some of the other mouthpieces that I tend to like, um, I, I do tend to like swivel cheeks so that I can grab one rein at a time. I am going to ride with two hands in the beginning most of the time. There might be some things I'll start riding in one hand. I do have a video on on uh, transitioning into neck reining. I'll link to this and that'll show you some of the, the where I start riding a little bit in one hand and how I do that and I cheat a little bit. Some of the little things that'll again give you sort of a buffer of an introduction rather than shocking the horse. Other mouthpieces that I like, I'm a really big fan of the Billy Allen and even more so the ported Billy Allen. So this is a mouthpiece that kind of has a barrel in the middle, which limits uh, the collapsibility of the the uh, each side of the, the bars or cannons of the bit. That bit also, without a port, has a reasonable amount of tongue pressure to it. And for various reasons, you may or may not want that. I'm a big fan of a short shanked correction bit. That name a lot of people are turned off by, but the correction bit is just a double jointed ported bit. That's all that it is. I would say that probably the average horse person doesn't need to go from a snaffle into a correction bit. But if you are more skilled and have a pretty good set of hands on you, then then you can absolutely make that jump. I, I do that all the time. That's probably one of the most common transitions that I do. Uh, another one that I like quite a bit is a floating spade, um, which is kind of a double-jointed bit, but the central lozenge has height, so it's not really a port, but it'll get the horse used to something a little bit higher up on the tongue. Usually there's some copper on there as well, which we've already discussed why I would want that. So uh, those are those are probably my favorites to go to. Uh, I see a single jointed shanked bit as a temporary transition bit. It's not something I'm going to ride a horse in for a long period of time. And again, I'm, I am typically riding that one rein at a time. I'm just trying to minimize the number of variables that I've changed on a horse that can't handle 
very many variables being changed at the same time. I had a question just yesterday about the Tom Thumb. So Tom Thumb fits that criteria. So it has the single jointed mouthpiece, which can be problematic for reasons already discussed. It also has straight cheeks. I do not want straight cheeks in a transition bit. Uh, the way bit balance works, straight cheeked bit are for horses that are riding in self-carriage and on the vertical. That's the way that they tend to balance. So we're talking a high level of refinement, not a transition. A transition bit should never have straight cheeks. They should always be swept back. Uh, additionally, straight cheeks are a temptation for a horse to play with because they're going to line up with the lips. They're going to tickle the whiskers. And now you have a horse that's trying to pop in his lips and, and trying to play with the shank of the bit. And if you've ever had a horse that actually bites down and holds the shank of a bit, that, that's a problem. And then additionally, Tom Thumbs tend to have a very coarse ring configuration in the mouthpiece. For whatever reason, the, the, the two central rings of it tend to be big and coarse rather than sort of refined. And, and a, a Tom Thumb just takes an already problematic design and then adds three other problems to it. it, it there just are better. Better ways, better design. It's not evil. It's not terrible. You know, but... but if you're going to go buy a bit, I sure as hell wouldn't buy a Tom Thumb because you just have options that are far better and far less problematic. So that's that's most of what I would do with the, the older horse to from the snaffle to the curb. Uh, I would try to do a lot of trail riding, a lot of relaxing stuff, and then I'm just systematically and slowly going to re-go over every single thing that that horse knows. If, if it's a trail horse, we're going to learn obstacles all over again, but but with two hands on a shank bit and then gradually one hand. So like, for instance, maybe, maybe I'm working this bridge right here. I'm going to ride the horse over the bridge with two hands on the reins, just like a snaffle. We're going to do that two, three times. Horse is comfortable. Horse is good. We're in control. No problems. Now I do it with one hand and I do it a little tighter and then we're going to do it again. And I'm going to give him a little more rain, a little more rain until I have the horse really riding between my reins. I'm going to do lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of 90 degree turns, picking up on the inside rein, tipping the horse's nose into the direction we're turning, reinforcing with the outside leg and the outside rein, and uh, and setting that up. If you have a horse that neck reins, and they do not, let's say you, you bring your hand to the right, so the outside rein with slack in it is pressing on the horse's left side. If that does not cause the horse to tip their nose to the right, you do not have a horse that neck reins correctly. Bend should come with neck reining. If it does not, or if counter bend comes with neck reining, you have a problem. Our last and final question is about an off-the-track thoroughbred. This horse, they've been rehabbing or, or you know, getting out of, out of the track stuff and into the English modes. And it goes nice and slow and relaxed on the buckle. But when you get into contact, catches another gear and wants to go fast. So I'm going to preface this by saying that my very first riding job was breaking thoroughbreds and being an exercise rider, Louisiana Tech on the, in the racehorse program that we had a track there and all that stuff. And I did that for six or eight months. And so I'm very familiar with what racehorses, thoroughbreds and all are taught to do and what they aren't taught to do. And when you are practically standing on top of a horse's back going 40 miles an hour, 
you need another point of contact, and that point of contact is the reins. So you're going to have some tension, and the horse kind of picks you up out of the saddle, almost like a, a ski boat pulling a skier. And so that horse is used to carrying 10, 15, maybe 20 pounds of pressure in their mouth as they're traveling along and kind of holding and helping the rider back there. That is how 99% of this goes. Now, I'm going to tell you that some of the very high-level jockeys and the really good trainers and the really nice horses, they don't do improper stuff. And they ride light, and they're, they are very qualified horsemen. And they're not doing what I'm telling you right now. 99% of them are. And so when you get one of those horses off of the track, pulling back on the reins and adding a significant amount of pressure to their mouth is actually associated with that horse running. Not not trotting along, not going along nice and easy. That That's when we find that last gear and we do what's called breezing. That's We're hauling ass. And so when you're picking up on the reins to make contact with this horse, he is essentially responding to a cue. And so what we have there is an established pattern. He has an anticipatory response. He has an expectation. That's the pattern. We need to break that pattern. So let's say that I let's say that I pick up on both reins and this horse starts to go faster. Then I'm going to drop down to one rein and I'm going to bring him down into a little bitty circle, kind of spiral him down. And as soon as he softens up and slows down, then I'm going to go. Now, now this will be the change, okay? As soon as he softens and slows down, I'm going to again come to contact. Now, this is the total opposite of what I would do for most other horses. Most other horses, I'm going to pick up on one rein. When they slow down, I'm going to give them total slack. This horse, I'm going to get back into the pattern with him. I'm going to pick up on both reins, and I'm going to see if he stays slow. Probably he doesn't. Probably he starts going fast again, break him down with one rein again. And you're going to want to figure out a few different things. I don't know exactly what the uh, the place you're riding at is, but, I mean, you could throw obstacles in here. We could, we could do jumps. We could walk over a bridge, a tarp, whatever. We want to do things that would make the horse go slowly while in contact. Riding in the woods, really, really thick woods, where the horse kind of has to pick, like, through log piles, and, and there's no way in hell it could even trot or walk fast, much less run that would be a good place to start introducing contact where he's picking his way through and and we're breaking and changing the pattern and that's the main thing that you have to do and when there's a really ingrained pattern like that and particularly when it's associated with adrenaline and all the things racehorses are going through this is going to take some time you're, you're not going to erase this in five minutes or five rides uh it, it's going to take a while before that horse is thinking and and not going with what's second nature, which is to run like hell when both reins are picked up and pressure's put on. So so you have an uphill battle in front of you. You are rehabbing, and you need to keep in mind that that horse, that's an actual cue to him, and not responding that way is going to make him feel like he's doing something wrong for a while. So, all right, that's been our March Q&A. If you're listening to us on a podcast directory that allows for it we would certainly appreciate a, a nice five-star rating and a comment or, or whatever you can do 
We would also ask that you share this podcast, all of our podcasts with your friends and try to help promote it for us and, and, uh, you know, get us out there in front of more people, help us to help them and, and, uh, helps us at the same time. So thank you much. We'll talk to you next time. We'll see you next week for another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I've been your host, Daniel Dolphin.